Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show, this week we'll be talking about Hilda Murrell. Now Hilda Murrell, as I understand it, was a British rose grower, naturalist, diarist, and campaigner against nuclear power and nuclear weapons. She was abducted and found murdered five miles from her home in Shropshire, despite a conviction based on DNA and fingerprint evidence and a confession, the case remains controversial and subject to conspiracy theories. Hilda Murrell was born on the 3rd of February 1906 in Shrewsbury, Shropshire, in the West Midlands of England, and lived there all her life. The elder of two daughters, she came from a family of nurserymen, seedsmen, and florists dating back to 1837. Her grandfather, Edwin Murrell, established and ran Portland Nurseries until his death in 1908. A gifted pupil at Shrewsbury Girls High School where she was head girl, Murrell won a scholarship to Noonham College, Cambridge, which she attended from 1924 to 27. She graduated with an MA in English and French Literature and Modern and Medieval Languages. Now, having no brothers, in 1928, Hilda was persuaded by her father, Owen, to join what was by then a successful and well-known family rose nursery and seed shop business run by him and his elder brother, Edwin Foley Murrell. She quickly developed outstanding horticultural and business skills and took over as director in 1937. Her energy and organisational flair proved assets during World War II in her voluntary work for the care and resettlement of Jewish refugee children in Shropshire foster homes and schools, making lifelong friends, from some of those she helped. Her fundraising efforts included arranging recitals in Shrewsbury by such world-famous performers, I'm going to butcher these names, I do apologise, as the pianist Dame Myra Hess and violinist Jelly Diani. Under her management, Edward Murrell Limited enjoyed its final golden years from 1949 through to 1970. She had become an internationally respected rose grower and authority on rose species, old-fashioned varieties and miniature roses. The firm regularly won top awards at Chelsea and Southport flower shows, as well as the oldest annual flower show in the world in Shrewsbury. She sold roses to the Queen Mother and the Churchills and helped Vita Sackville-West design her white garden at Sissinghurst Castle in Kent. Her annual rose catalogue was widely known and respected, both for its information and elegant writing, and she also designed many gardens. In a final tribute, David C.H. Austin gained her approval to name a rose after her just three weeks before she was murdered. Walking, especially in hill country, was one of Murrell's favourite leisure activities from an early age, and she had a passion for mountaineering and even rock climbing until arthritis limited this later in her life. With this, she developed a deep concern to preserve the countryside and wildlife of the Welsh marshes. She was a founder member of the National Soil Association promoting organic horticulture and of what is now the Shropshire Wildlife Trust, and in the 1970s she worked unpaid with her customary energy for the Shropshire branch of the Council for the Protection of Rural England. On her retirement in 1970, the rose business was sold and she had time and resources to devote to emerging environmental problems and threats to Shrewsbury's rich architectural heritage. She also indulged her love affair with the Welsh marshes by building a Canadian cedarwood Chalet high up on the Welsh side of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Lelimineinch Hill near Alstwery, with a stunning view up the Tennant Valley to the Berwyn Mountains, where eventually her ashes were scattered. 
She became an expert botanist, and extracts from her nature diaries were published in 1987, illustrated with her coloured photographs and botanical drawings. She was also deeply knowledgeable about metallistic monuments and the history of the British landscape. Other enthusiasms included antiques, spinning and weaving, and birdwatching, and she was a skilled cook and dressmaker and a voracious reader. Murrell's central concern in later life was for the growing pollution crisis in the environment. She brought together carefully researched, knowledgeable, a deep love of the natural world, and an ability to anticipate threats to it. She was also an indefatigable and fearless campaigner to bring these issues to the attention of those who had the power and responsibility to affect solutions. Now, having predicted the 1973 oil crisis, Murrell became increasingly concerned by the hazards posed by nuclear energy and weapons. She began to research this highly technical field, and in 1978, she wrote a paper titled, and I quote, What Price Nuclear Power? End quote in which she challenged the economics of the civil nuclear industry, and after this 1979 US accident at Three Mile Island, she turned her attention to safety aspects and honed in on the problem of radioactive waste, the disposal of which she concluded was the industry's archless heel. Now, the Three Mile Island incident, as I understand it, was a partial meltdown of the Three Mile Island Unit 2 TMI reactor in Pennsylvania, United States. It began at 4am on March 28th of 1979, and it is the most significant accident in U.S. commercial nuclear power plant history. On the seven-point international nuclear event scale, it is rated level five, which is accident with wider consequences. The accident crystallized anti-nuclear safety concerns among activists and the general public and resulted in new regulations for the nuclear industry. It has been cited as a con contributor to the decline of a new reactor construction program, a slowdown that was already underway in the 1970s. The partial meltdown resulted in the release of radioactive gases and radioactive iodine into the environment. In 1982, the Department of the Environment published a white paper, CMND 8607, on the British government's policy on radioactive waste management. Murrell, now in her late 70s, wrote a critique of it, which she developed into a submission, and I quote, an ordinary citizen's view of radioactive waste management, end quote, to the first formal planning inquiry into a nuclear power plant in Britain, the Sizewell B pressurized water reactor in Suffolk. The meltdown of the U.S. reactor at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania had endorsed Hilda's views that nuclear power was too hazardous for civil use. Margaret Thatcher was determined to introduce new nuclear plants of a similar design, the first of which would be built at Sizewell in Suffolk. When Hilda was murdered, she had been given approval to testify as an independent objector at the public inquiry. The Secretary of State for Defense, Michael Histelin, responded to the growing anti-nuclear movement by setting up a propaganda unit in the Ministry of Defense. It had direct links with MI5, and according to whistleblowing agent Kathy Masseter, its branch dealing with domestic subversion was expanded. Now, Murrell was scheduled to present her paper An Ordinary Citizen's View of Radioactive Waste Management at the Sizewell B Inquiry, the first public planning inquiry into the British nuclear power plant. On the 21st of March 1984, her home in Shrewsbury was burgled and a small amount of cash was taken. She was abducted in her own car, a white Renault 5, which many witnesses reported seeing being driven erratically through the town and past the police station during the lunch hour. The vehicle was soon reported abandoned in a country lane five miles outside Shrewsbury. The West Mercia police took another three days to find her body in a copse across a field from her car. She was sexually assaulted, stabbed through 
through her upper right arm and with five shallow stab wounds in the abdomen. She was naked from the waist down. There were severe abrasions on the knees. She had defensive cuts on each hand. The hyoid bone in her neck and her right collar were broken. Her face was bruised and a trail of her belongings led across a heavy clay field to her body. No valuables were missing, only 40 pounds odd in cash. Her autopsy was performed by Dr. Peter Ackland, who together with the detective leading the case, Detective Chief Superintendent David Cole, wrote about this and other cases in the book titled The Detective and the Doctor, a Murder Case Book, end quote. Murrell's murder quickly spawned conspiracy theories. In particular, it was suggested that she was killed by the security service during an operation against nuclear protesters. Rumours have persisted for years that MI5 was in some way involved with Hilda's death due to her anti-nuclear activism. Robert Greene, for example, believes MI5 and or the nuclear industry, with potential assistance from a private security agency, abducted Hilda and took her to a safe house to interrogate her and retrieve any sensitive information she may have possessed, then identified its sources and neutralized them, but not before permanently silencing and disposing of her. As a result of his attempts to bring his findings to public attention, Robert has been subjected to concerted harassment and surveillance by security services in both the UK and New Zealand, where he currently lives, a campaign that stepped up significantly when he began researching and writing A Thorn in Their Side, his book about the case. He and his wife's mail had been frequently opened, damaged, redirected, or even lost outright, and their home was reportedly broken into and monitored from the outside by a variety of vehicles. Now, in 2008, as Robert and his wife prepared to leave for Europe to research his book, they warned a skeptical house sitter about this barrage of intrusion. Later that night, as the house sitter returned to the house, he saw a man silhouetted by torchlight through the living room window. When he finally entered the house, there was no sign of forced entry, and nothing seemingly had been taken. Subsequently, the house sitter noticed a car parked outside the house several times and on the final occasion when he parked behind it one evening and got out to challenge the driver the car shot off at high speed some harassment in the UK has been even more sinister. In February of 2008, for example, he and his wife were staying at a pub. At 1.30am one night, he and his wife were awoken by an intruder trying to unlock their bedroom door. A peep through the keyhole revealed a large, track-suited man. Alerted, the individual fled the scene in an unmarked white van equipped with aerials which had been parked across the street since they arrived. Now, Robert isn't alone in this. He has documented the harassment and even murder of other whistleblowers who spoke out about contentious news nuclear issues or attempted to supply him with sensitive information. For example, Dr. Rosalie Bertel, an American researcher for the National Cancer Institute, discovered in 1977 low radiation levels caused leukemia and other health problems. When she spoke out about her findings, she experienced severe harassment, including attempts on her life. Then we have Dr. Patricia Sheehan, an Irish scientist, discovered in the 1980s mothers of children in Dudderlock, born with Down syndrome, had all been at a boarding school in 1957 when a fire in Windscale in Cumbra, northwest England, released radioactive fallout which was blown across the Irish Sea. In 1994, as she was preparing to present her findings to her inquiry into birth defects at Sellafield, Dr. Sheehan was found dead in her car, her papers missing. The crash was never fully investigated. Some cases are even closely linked with Hilda's, for example, Philip Griffith, whose adopted mother, Ellen, knew Hilda, phoned Ellen from Brighton soon after the first anniversary of her murder to report he'd overheard men in a pub bragging about how they killed her. He was found by a work colleague early the next morning in a park, dying of an apparent drug overdose. It took a fortnight for police to inform Ellen when she identified Philip's body. He had a severe wound on his forehead as if he'd been hit with a hammer, and investigators dismissed his death as drug-related. 
Then we have Willie McRae, which is another episode I'll do for a future episode of this podcast. He was a leading radical lawyer, Scottish National Party member, and anti-nuclear campaigner who often corresponded with Hilda, and he was found dead in 1985, dying at the wheel of his car off a main road in the Western Highlands with two bullet wounds in his head. His smashed wristwatch and papers were found 20 yards away from the car and a gun further away in a stream. His death was officially ruled a suicide and no inquest was held. It has been confirmed. Willie was under surveillance by Special Branch at the time of his death and, like Hilda, was preparing to give evidence at an inquiry into the nuclear industry. Michael Mansfield QC said new evidence meant that an independent police force should be appointed to examine enduring concerns and inconsistencies relating to the death of Hilda Murrell in March of 1984. One MP, Dam Taliel, told Parliament that men of British intelligence were involved. Subsequent claims from intelligence sources that they never even opened a file on the rose-growing anti-nuclear campaigner have now been dismissed by Mansfield as completely ludicrous. He said, and I quote, There must have been a file for a number of reasons, one of them being that she was plainly very active and very outspoken about a government policy that was extremely sensitive at that time, nuclear power. It was central to Margaret Thatcher's thinking that they would have been closely watching what she was up to, who she was associating with, and so on. The victim was consumed with anxiety that something was going to happen to her. A look at why that might be involves the evidence she was about to give to the Sizewell Inquiry. End quote. The involvement of Mansfield, whose past cases include the Stephen Lawrence murder, follows the painstaking accumulation of evidence on the case by Murrell's nephew, Commander Robert Green. The former naval intelligence officer was one of a handful of people privy to details of the sinking of the Argentinian ship, the General Belgrano, during the 1982 Falklands conflict. Green became embroiled in allegations that he leaked intelligence to Daliel that the Belgrano had been attacked while steaming away from the Falklands, a revelation that undermined Britain's justification for the sinking. Just two days before Murrell was abducted, Daliel began asking ministers detailed questions about the movements of the Belgrano when it was sunk. Murrell's links to Green and her outspoken nature may have placed her in the spotlight of the intelligence agencies. Quote, they, the security services, must have noticed his connection with her. Therefore, they might have thought that she possessed information of a sensitive nature. End quote, says Manfield. Despite 28 years having passed since her death, Green revealed details of what he claims are attempts to intimidate him in order to prevent him from investigating the case. Despite having moved to New Zealand, Green said he is the subject of continuing surveillance and that the tyres of his car have been slashed, his mail intercepted, and occasionally his house broken into. Hilda was the aunt of Commander Robert Green, Royal Navy retired, a former naval intelligence officer who was one of a handful of people privy to details of the sinking of the Argentine ship, the General Belgrano, by the nuclear submarine HMS Conqueror during the 1982 Falklands War. So now we're going to get into the Belgrano connection. So this centered on the controversial torpedoing of the Argentine cruiser General Belgrano by the nuclear attack submarine HMS Conqueror during the 1982 Falklands War. Hilda's nephew, Commander Robert Green, came under suspicion of leaking top-secret information to well-informed Labour politician and persistent critic of the Falklands War, Tam Dalyal, who has also happened to be pro-nuclear energy. During the Falklands War, Commander Green was one in the Northwood Command Bunker working as Staff Officer of Intelligence to the Commander-in-Chief Fleet Admiral Sir John Fieldhouse. For career reasons, Green had applied for redundancy from the Navy before the war began and left service at the end of 1982. In a late-night House of Commons debate just before Christmas of 1984, Tam Dalyal stated under parliamentary privilege that although Green was not his source of secret information, he had sent the order to sink the General Belgrano. 
This was demonstrably wrong for two conclusive reasons. One, because attack orders are sent by operations, not intelligence officers. And two, Commander Green was off duty at the time the order was sent. In a sensational trial in 1985, a Ministry of Defence official Clive Ponting was acquitted of whistleblowing to Dalyal that Defence Secretary Michael Histerlin had ordered him to write two versions of the Belgrano sinking, a factual one for the Cabinet and a sanitised one for Parliament. Dalyal raised the issue of Hilda's murder and its connection to the Belgrano sinking in the Commons again in June of 1985, having originally been promoted to take an interest in the murder by an anonymous phone call, asking him to read an article by Judith Cook in the New Statements of 9th of November 1984, which discussed the case. Dalyal went on to allege that British intelligence agents had been ordered to search Hilda's house for secret documents relating to the sinking which it was suspected Green might have given her for safekeeping and that Hilda had disturbed the burglars by returning home unexpectedly, leading the need to silence her. Judith Cook wrote two books about Hurrell's murder, the first Who Killed Hilda Murrell in 1985 and Unlawful Killing in 1994. The legality of the sinking of General Belgrano has been disputed due to the disagreement on the exact nature of the Maritime Exclusion Zone, or MEZ, and whether General Belgrano had been returning to port at the time of the sinking. Through a message passed via the Swiss Embassy in Buenos Aires to the Argentine government nine days before the sinking, the UK made it clear that it no longer considered the 200-mile exclusion zone as the limit of its military action. On the 1st of May of 1982, Admiral Juan Lombardo ordered all Argentine naval units to seek out the British task force around the Falklands and launch a massive attack the following day. In 2003, the ship's captain, Hecker Bonzo, confirmed that General Belgrano had actually been manoeuvring, not sailing away from the exclusion zone. Captain Bonzo stated that any suggestion that HMS Conqueror's actions were a betrayal was utterly wrong. Rather, the submarine carried out its duties according to the accepted rules of war. In an interview two years before his death in 2009, he further stated that, and I quote, it was absolutely not a war crime. It was an act of war, lamentably legal, end quote. The singing also became a case celebre for anti-war campaigners such as Labour MP Tam Dalyal. Early reports suggested that more than 1,000 Argentine soldiers might have been killed in the sinking. It was in fact around about a third of that number. The sinking occurred 14 hours after President of Peru Ferdinando Balande, sorry if I get that name wrong, proposed a comprehensive peace plan and called for regional unity, although Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and diplomats in London did not see this document until after the sinking of General Belgrano. Diplomatic efforts to that point had failed completely. After the sinking, Argentina rejected the plan, but the UK indicated its acceptance on, on the 5th of May. The news was subsequently dominated by military action and the British continued to offer ceasefire terms until the 1st of June that were rejected by the junta. Some details of the action were leaked by to a British Member of Parliament, Tam Daliel, in 1985 by the civil servant Clive Ponting, resulting in the unsuccessful prosecution of the latter under the Official Secrets Act of 1911. The documents revealed that General Belgrano was sailing away from the exclusion zone when she was attacked and sunk. In May of 1983, Thatcher appeared on Nationwide, a live television show on BBC One, where a teacher, Diana Gould, questioned her about the sinking, saying that the ship was already west of the Falklands and heading towards the Argentinian mainland to the west. Gould also said that the Peruvian peace proposal must have reached London in the 14 hours between its publication and the sinking of General Belgrano, and the escalation of the war could have thus been prevented. In the emotional exchange that followed, Thatcher answered that the vessel was a threat to British ships and lives and denied that the peace proposal had reached her. She added that, and I quote, one day all of the facts in about 30 years time will be published, end quote. 
Apparently this was in reference to a classified report prepared by intelligence officer Major David Thorpe for Thatcher after the incident. Diana Gould died in December of 2011, just a few weeks before the existence of the report was made public. After the show, Thatcher's husband Dennis lashed out at the producer of the show in the entertainment suite, saying that his wife had been stitched up by bloody BBC poofs and trots, end quote. Thatcher herself commented during the interview, and I quote, I think it could only be in Britain that a Prime Minister was accused of sinking an enemy's ship that was a danger to our Navy, when my main motive was to protect the boys in our Navy, end quote. According to the British historian Sir Lawrence Friedman, neither Thatcher nor the Cabinet were aware of General Belgrano's change of course before the cruiser was attacked. In his book 100 Days, Admiral Woodard claims that General Belgrano was part of the southern part of a pincer movement aimed at the task force and had to be sunk quickly. He wrote, and I quote, The speed and direction of an enemy's ship can be irrelevant, because both can change quickly. What counts is his position, his capability, and what I believe to be his intention. End quote. On May 4th, the British tabloid newspaper The Sun ran the controversial headline Gotcha in reference to the sinking of General Belgrano. Calvin McKenzie, the newspaper's editor, was reported to have used an impromptu exclamation by The Sun's features editor Wendy Henry as the inspiration for the headline. The accompanying text reported that General Belgrano had only been hit and damaged and not sunk, while a gunboat, actually the armed tug ARA Elfrez Sobral, sorry if I get that name wrong, had sunk when in fact the reverse was the case. After early editions went to press, further reports suggested a major loss of life, and Mackenzie toned down the headline to read, Did 1,200 Argies drown? In later editions. Despite its notoriety, few readers in the UK saw the headline at first hand, as it was only used on copies of the first Northern editions. Southern editions and later editions in the North carried the toned down headline. Labour MP Tam Dalyell, pursuing Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher about the controversial sinking, added a second controversial theory about Murrell's death when he announced in Parliament early on the 20th of December 1984 that British intelligence had been involved. Until then, only her anti-nuclear work had been suspected as a political motive. Dalyell raised the issue in the Commons again in June of 1985, having originally been prompted to take an interest in the murder by an anonymous phone call asking him to read an article by Judith Cook in the New Statesman of 9th of November 1984, which discussed the case. Cook later wrote two books about Murrell's murder, Who Killed Hilda Murrell, 1985, and Unlawful Killing in 1994. Her Times obituary by Charles Sinker ended, and I quote, Her close friends remember her as a fierce but fundamentally gentle warrior, a bunny-in-like soul on a lonely and constant quest for the path of the spirit. She died in tragic circumstances alone in the countryside. It is an almost intolerable irony that a life so dedicated to peaceful pursuits and to the pursuit of peace should have been terminated by an act of mindless violence, end quote. She was cremated nearly five months after her death at Emistry Crematorium Shrewsbury, and her ashes scattered at, and I'm going to butcher this name, Maeglwynind in Wales. A commemorative stone was unravelled in Ten Wybrin, I'm going to butcher this last name, Lullanheard in 2004 in a birch grove planted on the 20th anniversary of her death. She is also commemorated on her family headstone in Long Tim Road Cemetery Shrewsbury, section 149. 
Among questions raised about the case are those casting fresh doubts on the convictions of a burglar, Andrew George, who was jailed for life in 2005 for Murrell's murder. George was aged 16 at the time and in care of a children's home near her home. The prosecution believed that he panicked during a burglary before abducting Murrell. George's DNA was found to match samples taken from the scene, yet a previously undisclosed witness statement made by a forensic scientist in the case Michael Appleby indicates that he found DNA under Murrell's fingernails from another man. Green claims that this information was withheld from the trial jury, and another troubling aspect of the case relates to the testimony of the owner of the copse where the body was discovered, because on the day of the murder, as I understand it, Captain Ian Scott visited the copse to check for trees that needed felling. Despite visiting the exact spot where her body was found, Scott somehow missed it, yet photographs clearly show the body being visible from a distance, and subsequent police inquiries suggested that he was looking up at the tree and would not have been studying the ground? There was no way that somebody of his calibre, of his knowledge, would have overlooked Hilda's body, said Mansfield. Together, these factors require a reinvestigation in relation to material that never really surfaced in any of the judicial proceedings, either the inquest or the trial itself. End quote. It's not the first time either that MI5 has been involved in controversial incidents. In March of 2018, the government acknowledged that MI5 officers are allowed to authorise agents to commit criminal activity in the UK. Mal Foa, the director of Reprieve, said, and I quote, After a seventh-month-long legal battle, the Prime Minister has finally been forced to publish a secret order, but we are a long way from having transparency. The public and Parliament are still being denied the guidance that says when British spies can commit criminal offences and how far they can go. Authorised criminality is the most intrusive power a state can wield. Theresa May must publish this guidance without delay. End quote. In November of 2019, four human rights organisations claimed that the UK government has a policy dating from the 1990s to allow MI5 officers to authorise agents or informers to participate in crime and to immunise them against prosecution for criminal actions. The organisations said the policies allowed MI5 officers to authorise agents and informers to participate in criminal activities that protected national security or the economic well-being of the UK. The organisations took the UK government to the Investigatory Powers Tribunal seeking to have it declare the policy illegal and to issue an injunction against further unlawful conduct. In December of 2019, the tribunal dismissed the request of the human rights organisations in a three-to-one decision. The potential criminal activities include murder, kidnap and torture, according to the Bloomberg report. Now we get to the allegations of collusion and torture. So in October of 2020, and I'm going to butcher this name, I do apologise, Rangzib Ahmed brought a civil claim against MI5 alleging that Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence Agency had arrested him in 2006 and that MI5 had colluded in torture by submitting questions which were put to him under torture in Pakistan. This claim was rejected by the High Court on the 16th of December 2020. On the 7th of July 2009, David Davis, a British Member of Parliament MP, accused the UK government of outsourcing torture. Davis contended that the UK government allowed Ahmed to leave the UK and enter Pakistan, even though they had evidence against him upon which he was later convicted, that Pakistani inter-services intelligence detained and questioned Ahmed under torture, and that British intelligence and policies agencies had full knowledge of this. Davis further accused the UK government of trying to gag Ahmed by preventing him from coming forward with accusations after his imprisonment following his return to the UK. Davis stated that there was an alleged request to drop his allegations of torture. If he did that, they could get his sentence cut and possibly give him some money. 
if this request to drop the torture case is true, it is frankly monstrous. It would at the very least be a criminal misuse of the powers and funds under the government's contest strategy, and at worst, a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. Allegations then emerge that objectors at the Sizewell Inquiry and leading anti-nuclear weapon and environmental campaigners were under surveillance from state security agents. In addition to other problems of radioactive waste, Tiller was researching its genetic effects. She had persuasively criticised the finances of the nuclear energy industry and was strongly opposed to nuclear weapons. She was also taking advice from dissident nuclear scientists, including a retired British radio chemist, Don Arnott, who dropped out of the Sizewell Inquiry after a mysterious heart attack in April of 1983. Arnott had been preparing to testify about a design fault in the control rod system of the Three Mile Island reactor, which could have been a major contributory cause of its meltdown in 1979, and which was replicated in the UK version under scrutiny at the inquiry. No one else had raised the issue, but Hilda met him once more at his first public lecture after recovering from his heart attack six weeks before she was murdered. He told Green that he never briefed Hilda about the control rod design fault at that meeting. However, Arnott knew he was under surveillance, so it was likely that Hilda was too. The agents would have assumed Arnott had briefed her about the control rod problem. Green read Hilda's paper into the record at the inquiry in September of 1984, but it had not been updated to include information about the control rod issue. Neither was the issue raised in any other evidence to the inquiry. In his book, Green describes how he came to suspect that Hilda had also uncovered additional sensitive information with potential to seriously damage the nuclear industry. Now we get into the astonishing police mistakes. The police account of Hilda's death was riven with anomalies, and so was the handling of the case. The police inspected Hilda's crashed car by sunset on the Wednesday, yet they did not check her house until the Friday evening. There is evidence of changes to her home while she was missing, including doors and windows open and shut, and lights switched on and off. There were many reports of suspicious people and vehicles around the house in her crashed car, yet the police ignored them all. A white van was reported parked in her drive around the time of her abduction. According to the owner of the cops, the body was not there on the Thursday when he checked for trees for felling. So, was Hilda abducted to a safe house for interrogation before being left to be discovered on Saturday? The pathologist concluded that despite her many injuries, Hilda had died of hypothermia. So, she had several superficial stab wounds, but a lack of blood. Were some of the wounds inflicted after death to simulate an attack? Was this to conceal that she'd been murdered by breaking her neck before being carried into the cops and a false trail layered of her clothes plus boots, broken spectacles and kitchen knife? Did the police know about the crime before the body was discovered? Who were the mysterious officers our witness saw on a murder hunt on the farmland near the abandoned car on the Friday? Why did detectives visit a Shrewsbury sex counsellor on the Friday evening before the body was discovered, asking if he knew of any man with sexual problems and a preference for violence to old ladies and interfering with their clothing? Whoever was in Hilda's house had clearly been looking for something. It had been carefully searched and her papers gone through in an orderly manner. Her telephone had been cut off in such a way that although it was dead from inside the house, anyone calling would hear it ring out, which is really weird. The police agree that is a sophisticated way of doing things, not the actions of a common burglar taking a chance. If they don't get to me first, I want the world to know that at least one old woman had seen through their lies. That was what Hilda told ecologist and anti-nuclear campaigner Gerard Morgan Grenville at the end of her last agitated 30-minute call to him. As well as preparing her Sizewell paper, she had been distributing his leaflets, making sensitive allegations about nuclear weapons being deployed in British warships to the Falklands War and revealing that the Belgrano was sunk 59 miles outside the exclusion zone. This information could only have come from an inside source. 
Morgan Grenville was an old Etonian friend of the Maravik Labour MP Tam Dalyal, who was embarrassing Mrs. Thatcher with other secret details. On Monday, March 19th of 1984, Dalyal hand-delivered a letter to Mr. Hesseltine, asking nine new questions about the Belgrano episode. Two days later, Hilda's house was searched and she was abducted. Later that year, Dalyal announced in Parliament that British intelligence had been involved. Hilda had also conferred with dissident nuclear scientists, one of whom had discovered a serious flaw in the control rods of the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor, as I mentioned before. It is possible that Hilda held some more damaging material. Several witnesses have come forward with information that Hilda was involved with Bletchley Park. One elderly woman, now dead, reported that Hilda was her supervisor. There is also strong circumstantial evidence that Hilda was trying to prevent some extremely sensitive documents from being stolen and suppressed. Three days before her abduction, she tried to leave documents with a friend. Less than an hour before she was abducted, she phoned a veteran peace activist from a cell box, asking him to meet her that evening with a stout bag for a large number of documents she wanted published. Though no one could prove any of Hilda's papers were taken, her documents, satchel and handbag were not found. Andrew George, the man convicted of the murder, told a fellow prisoner who was a key prosecution witness at his trial that he had been encouraged to burgle Hilda's house by a strange woman who told him she had friends in a white van who would clean up after him. While on remand, George apparently confessed to his dying father that on entering Hilda's house, two men held guns to his head and threatened to kill him but promised him £60,000 if he kept his mouth shut. There is no doubt George was there, his DNA was found in semen on Hilda's underslip and clothing and his fingerprints were in her house. But had he been forced to do so, and if so, why? There is also crucial unexamined evidence showing male DNA under Hilda's fingernails on both hands and semen on her cardigan that could not have come from George. The fingernail DNA established Hilda had fought with another man. Why was this ignored by both prosecution and the defence? And why did the Forensic Science Service lose the body sheet and crucial body parts associated with toxicology tests including Hilda's brain, liver, stomach contents, bile and urine? An affidavit from Trina Guthrie, treated by Hilda as an adopted niece, set out an account of Hilda's death from a former convict. He had been told the following, that Hilda had died at the hands of a team dispatched to search for copies of secret signals relating to the Belgrano sinking. The man had shared a cell in a prison near York with another inmate serving 15 years for armed robbery, who claimed to have led a team of three men and a woman hired by a secret intelligence department to do freelance work. The team leader allegedly reported to the cabinet office via an MI5 liaison officer. The female team member wearing Hilda's hat and coat was driven in a car by one of the other men through town and out to near the cops as a decoy. Witnesses reported apparently seeing Hilda obscured by a wide brim floppy brown hat slumped in the passenger seat of her own car on the day of her disappearance. Meanwhile, the real Hilda was allegedly taken to a safe house where she was subjected to further interrogation under torture with a knife. Two nights later, she was dumped in the cops and left to die. The use of a decoy is reminiscent of tactics from Northern Ireland at the time, where suspects were abducted by snatch squads, sometimes criminals, in the pay of the security services. The question is, why have so many involved in attempting to find the truth been met with threats, harassment or harm? Philip Griffith, who I spoke before, whose mother was one of Hilda's friends, allegedly overheard three men in a Brighton pub bragging how they killed her. He was later found drugged with morphine and beaten to death in a park. Someone had emptied his flat as well. Cecil Wolfe, publishers of Graham, Stick, Graham Smith's book Death of a Rose Grower and several books by Dahlia criticising the Thatcher government, experienced a mysterious break-in. Judith Cook, who I've mentioned as well, 
author of Who Killed Hilda Murrell, was also harassed. Lady Dora Russell, a 91-year-old who wrote a letter to the newspaper supporting Cook, was beaten by an intruder. A postcard followed, quote, We broke into Hilda Murrell, we broke into the wolves, and we'll break into wherever we want to, end quote. If Andrew George abducted and murdered Hilda, why are key witnesses still being harassed and intimidated? Now we get to the trial of Andrew George. So local labourer Andrew George, who was 16 when Murrell was murdered, was arrested in June 2003 after a cold case review of the murder uncovered DNA and fingerprint evidence linking him with the crime. In court, George admitted participating in the crime, but asserted that he'd broken into the house with his brother, who had been responsible for the sexual assault and the killing. In May of 2005, George was found guilty of kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and murdering Murrell. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommended minimum term of 15 years that was likely to keep him in prison until at least 2018 at the age of 51. The Daily Telegraph quoted the investigating officer as saying, I told you so, but Tam Daliella is saying it stretched the imagination to the breaking point to suppose that the body dumped on a Wednesday could have lain undiscovered until the following Saturday despite a search of the cops on the Thursday by a farmer and his dog. Quote, the two would have no problem finding a dead rabbit, let alone the body of Hilda Murrell. End quote. The farmer, landowner himself, has always maintained that if the body had already been there the day after the kidnapping, he would have seen it. Furthermore, Robert Green was quoted as saying, quote, There are many unanswered questions. I believe the conviction may be unsafe. In June 2006, the Court of Appeal upheld the murder conviction, saying there was nothing unsafe about the verdict returned against George. Green, however, disagreed, saying, quote, There is evidence that Andrew George was in Hilda's house, however, he could not drive and did not match the description of a driver of a car. Since the trial which I sat through, I found evidence that would have acquitted him and that others were involved. Meanwhile, break-ins to my home in New Zealand and continuing interference with my phone and mail suggest that the British state security authorities fear what I might reveal about the case, end quote. A former cellmate of George's has claimed George admitted to committing the crime, but said he was not the only person involved, alleging that the burglary was committed by a gang of youths in search of money for drugs. In March of 2012, Michael Mansfield QC called for an inquiry into what MI5 knew about the case. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Question. Colonia Dignidad, or Digital Colony, was an isolated colony of Germans established in post-World War II Chile by immigrant Nazi Germans, which became notorious for the internment, torture, and murder of dissidents during the military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinochet in the 1970s, while under the leadership of German fugitive Paul Schaefer. <laughs>